Hey, common scientists, we are coming to you this week with the topic of language. Uh, so we'll get to talk a little bit about maybe some different languages that we're passionate about, maybe a little bit about uh, origins of language or acquisition of language. It's a huge topic, so I'm sure there will be some twists and turns in the conversation today as common scientists. So I want to preface, as common scientists, of course, the keyword is common. Our goal is to come to the table with some ideas and research and thoughts and to refine and understand each other better. That might turn out as a debate uh, and or some truth seeking, as Aiden might say, <laughs> as, it, as it turned out a little bit last week. Um, and or just a really co uh, deep conversation about something that we all genuinely care about but the goal of course is to refine and understand each other better and understand the world better as common scientists so with this week for language i'm going to kick it off right away to aiden and i think he's got a quote for us the limits of language are the limits of one's world and that's a quote by ludwig Wittgenstein. i'm going to butcher his last name and he's in Austrian British philosopher. I'm not familiar so much with his work, but this was a quote I came across in my research for the language cast. And yeah, I mean, I, it provoked a lot of thought in me. Dre, do you have any any responses or, or what do you think he meant in that quote? First and foremost, shout to Ludwig. There's a lot of good, a lot of great Ludwigs out there. My middle name is Ludwig, but I'm not. I'm not saying I'm one of those greats. I'm just saying this, you know. Wait, a, there's actually? a trend. Yeah. Andre Are you Ludwig. Uh huh? No. Wow. Yeah, that's my middle name. That's nuts. How? Jeez, <laughs> <laughs> all narrow-minded. <laughs> <laughs> Your middle name. <laughs> Yeah. Really? Are you serious? I'm dead ass. You're not lying on cast. No cap. I wow. <laughs> no, no, my name is Ludwig. Andre Ludwig Arnett. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. What's the origin of of that? You know, just like love me some Germanic culture. Cool name. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. The more you know. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, my mom is adopted. So all of my kid. So my family is Native American. My mom's Native American. All of her kids, for some reason, have French names. I don't know if that's like a French influence from like the Louisiana Purchase, all that type of like France owning. I don't know why, you know, but all of like Andre, Leticia, and Deshaun all come from French origin. That's my siblings under my mom. And yeah. her middle name is Renee, also a French name. But she was adopted by a by German parents, um, German couple. So my middle name comes from my German grandfather. Wow. Yeah. And like, our, yeah, like our birth name, whatever, it was like Kaiser. Uh, my birth name was Kaiser, but then wow. changed to my father's name. So I, it would have made more sense, I guess, if it was Andre Ludwig Kaiser, it'd be very German. Yeah. <laughs> wow. yeah. But yeah. now it's like French, German, and then weird, probably Americanized Arnett. I don't know where that comes from, but. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The more you know. Yeah. I <laughs> so know. Ludwig Wittgenstein. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Um, so again, that quote is the limits of language are the limits of one's world. Yes. Um, that quote is obviously like super inspirational. Like it just sounds tight, right? It's like, oh yeah. And like you obviously like as a, 
um, English teacher. I'm like, you know, every day, kids, the limit of your words is the limit of your world, all that type of stuff. And, you know, they're like, what are you talking about, Mr. Arnett? We don't know what you're talking about. But I'm like, you, you'll learn soon. Like, the slaves wouldn't have been freed if Frederick Douglass didn't write that novel. They wouldn't have been freed if all those abolitionists weren't writing in the papers. All that good stuff. But uh, I think there's a lot of truth to it, of course, with that example. Also with um, the ability to express yourself and feel like you are an agent of being outside of your the prison that could be your body and mind. However, I, of course, don't think... It's like literally true, like the limit of your words or language is not literally like in the limit of your world, like because mm. you think like we we think in words, you and I, and, but yeah, or over here, right? You think in like images predominantly, right? Yeah. So of course, you have a completely different world and perception and experience than I, we do. I hear you, and on the one hand, I think that that makes a lot of sense, but on the other hand, I can experience in my my head something that I can really sometimes struggle to put words to and in that way my world my ability to explain my world which like exists only in my head right my perceptions of the external world exist only because I interpret them in my head in words right and so if I'm going to communicate my ideas to someone and I don't think in words, I sometimes feel like I am more limited because I don't have words always to express something that might be really emotionally driven or um, have just much more complexity than words could possibly describe. And in that way, mm-hmm. I sometimes think that my world specifically is limited by words, especially yeah that makes a lot of sense too in light of your blog that's dropping soon yeah and so that reminds me i'm gonna preface this well i'm not gonna preface it it just so that reminds me of something that i had actually written down in my in my notes during my research is so temple grandin in this is a nice throwback to our veganism episode. Mm-hmm. She uh, is, <laughs> is an in- incredible animal rights activist and has uh, done a lot for uh, Im- the improvement of factory farming conditions, whether or not they are are morally or ethical or not. Like she's definitely done a lot for reducing the suffering that does exist in those environments, and she attributes it to her autism which is associated with thinking more in pictures and so she's has struggled socially because she struggles to communicate her ideas across to people however she has been more attuned Uh, she describes experiences of being more attuned to her uh, environment and thus being able to help design it in a way that would be less stressful for cattle like uh seeing uh, a shiny object that might reflect off and blind them um that a, a person who might think more in words does not notice uh so i thought that that was just anyways yeah I, I, so that sounds like an example of somebody whose world is not limited by their language uh or it is her her world is 
both. Both, yeah. It's limited in that she struggles socially uh, with other humans, Mm -hmm. but she's incredibly attuned to her surroundings and to animals, too, um, because of this, like, thinking in pictures. Yeah, I don't want to harp on the next thing I'm about to say, but I did, with when it comes to autism, which I obviously have no idea, like, right. I don't know much about. Yeah, I don't either, so. Uh, propensity to think in images, I would have thought, because aren't they, like, super left, I thought it was, like, a super left brain thing, where it's, like, a literalism and, like, a concreteness that people with autism didn't have, which would have made me think that they would have thought more, like, in, like, harder, a harder language, I guess, I don't know. I guess I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, that, that just surprised me is all I'm saying. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, let me just briefly speak to that in uh, the in the very basic sense of my knowledge. Um, there is a whole spectrum of autism, right? Mm-hmm. And depending on where and what disorders you might have um, or disorder you might have, you could end up with more left-brained or right-brained dominance. So mm, okay. I spent a lot sure. of time working with patients who... Uh, were on the autistic spectrum. Many of them, though, had official diagnoses more similar to mental retardation because of their age. And once Mm. you're diagnosed Mm -hmm. in a system, um, they don't generally need or feel that it would add to your life to go back and re-diagnose you since the language has changed over time. Mm. Um, But yeah, you can have left-brained or right-brained dominance, certainly in those who are not linguistically capable you would expect right there to be a right brain dominance rather than a left brain dominance. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, Oh, someone uh, should maybe explain (laughs) left brain and right brain, where that comes from. Ah, the boys are looking at me. (laughs) Yeah, you're a big old explainer. You're always helping us out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so... um, Common scientists, this is a great just uh, throw in there of some anatomy and physiology. Your brain is organized into two hemispheres, the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere. Uh, These two sides of your brain communicate to one another. Um, And so if you put your left hand on the left side of your own head, um, that would be like your left side, right? And uh, this is a little tricky sometimes because if you're looking at another person, uh, it can be like a little bit backwards. But the left brain is more responsible for speech and um, math and numbers are often associated. And then the right brain is more responsible generally for um, artistic ability. Um, Music is often associated with that side creativity. So these two uh, strengths or dominances can actually be measured in um, brain activity. I think I don't want to for sure speak to what like what what type of imaging is done, but this is like a measurable difference where you can see um, whether people are more like left-brained or right-brained. So um, with language specifically, Dre was associating that language might be a more left-brained trait and um yeah in that like potentially have a, a a disconnect in like the story that we just heard but yeah and i think too when people say like somebody is left brain left brained or left brain dominant that would mean that 
you would there that person would be more skilled with language and logic and 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 that's like kind of how it's used colloquially colloquially (laughs) nice yeah (laughs) cool that would be the word all right but anyways language (laughs) and and using it to to describe (laughs) it is it is tough but it's difficult to use to describe uh experiences and phenomena uh dre when did you so i mean uh, you're a writer what does language mean to a writer yeah i mean it's definitely it i definitely have a very profound appreciation for it just like before the podcast i was talking about i was talking to you guys about how excited i was for this one not that i think i have anything of importance to say (laughs) but just i'm just like fascinated with language i think it's so interesting and as when we were up at um lauren's parents house months ago we aiden and i were talking about like thinking in words as opposed to thinking in images and like not being able to you know like those those exercises in middle school when the teachers would be like imagine a red apple and everybody's like oh i like i see a red apple or i see a beach and then Aiden and i were just in there like nah i'm just thinking of words <laughs> like i don't i do not see any red I apple in there I, I hear red apple <laughs> right in my I'm, internal I'm, yeah, exactly all i'm doing is saying red apple in my head that's all I'm doing. there's no red apple in there um it's simply the symbolic <laughs> well um you know letters but uh so because of that, the way that my brain works in that way, that's definitely a very inherent reason of why language is so important to me. And then I just, I truly do believe, like, like I said, I'm not, like, I don't think that quote by Wittgenstein isn't, is perfect, but I think you can obviously, you can, you can dismiss it because it's so absolute, but just mm-hmm. in general, if you just take it as an inspiration and take it for like in so many aspects of life, I think it's super inspirational. I definitely think uh, poetry and writing and uh, being able to express myself in deeper ways because of the intricacies of the English language has really helped help me become who I am and help me express who I feel like I am inside as opposed to how the world saw me, especially as a youth. Yeah. Yeah, I would like to echo that. I think for me that I, I experienced... Uh, I mean, I definitely had in like a, a somewhat of a fascination with language, given, like you said, a, a proclivity to think in language and, and numbers or whatever. Uh, but I went through like over time, I, I learned to become put more put much more effort into my language uh, because I find it incredibly powerful when I'm able to put the words to what I mean, which when I say that, that sounds like a simple idea, Yeah. but it, it is uh, incredibly powerful, whether it be in a relationship with a partner or with a friend or in a business transaction or whatever it is, mm-hmm. like we, we employ legions of lawyers to settle disputes of language mm-hmm. uh for this reason and and so it is important to take care with what 
or I have found that it is incredibly important for myself to take care with what I say. And it might take me a little more, a little more effort and time to get the words out. Yeah. Uh, however, I've found it to reduce a lot of the, or at least some of the frustration I've caused in my, in my youth. You say that like you're no longer a youth, you've ascended. Yeah. Uh, no, no, it's definitely a work in progress, and and it takes every day to to think harder about what I'm what I'm saying. Being precise in language is exceptionally challenging, and in addition to being precise in your language, it's extremely challenging to ensure that the listener is understanding you. Right, even in our conversations on the Common Science cast, I don't know that we've had one yet, but there will be times where one of us pose a question to the rest of the group uh, or to one individual, and we don't have a clue what's being asked, or we're missing some piece of context. Even in our writing, of course, someone might write something and send it to the other two of our Common Science group for some review, and we might not have a clue what's being said. And so you can be precise and do your best to communicate what you are thinking. But what you are thinking in and of itself might be limited by words. So what you are communicating might not ever be understood the same way that you're meaning it to be, which I find extraordinarily fascinating. Oh, yeah. And it took me (laughs) a lot of trial and error and continual trial and error to realize that uh there is an extraordinary difference between (laughs) yeah i mean there's like there i i see obviously there's many complexities going on with like the conveying your thoughts or feelings or whatever but there is definitely the the compressing of your your emotion or thought or state and that is going on in your your brain and your neurophysiology into the words itself and then it's also like learning beyond that taking it to another level packaging it in a way that somebody else can digest i think it is an incredibly hard hard skill but it is a skill and it's something that can be developed over time absolutely i think uh now seems like as good a time as any to highlight why language is so challenging. Some of the reasons why it might be so challenging to convey our thoughts and feelings. And I came across some research from a Swede in Germany, Michael Erickson. Uh, we'll make sure to link this in in the show notes. But the first thing he talks about is how language is linear and thoughts are not. So. Uh, when I say that, language has to be connected like one word, then the other, then the other mm-hmm. into a sentence, and then one sentence in front of another, in front of another. So it creates this linear story, right? Mm-hmm. If you think of a page written, you can see the image really well, right? One word after the other. However, thoughts and feelings don't happen like that. I don't know, common scientists, if you guys can relate to ever having a feeling and someone asks you what's on your mind, and there are just so many conflicting emotions and feelings and toilings that are happening in your head that you couldn't possibly express it. That's because the way we think is not linear. Right. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, for sure. It could be like um, tetrahedron, or it could be yeah. like just the words are all the ideas are all piled on top of each other. Mm-hmm. It's not like cleaning up on a page or anything like that. It could be scribbling. Mm-hmm. Um, I think yeah, I understand the gist of what you're saying, and it is definitely a. It can be troublesome at times, and I think for some people with a little bit more of a gifted mind like maybe like a synesthete or like a savant or just people who are kind of trending that direction who kind of have these more this different type of what mode of thinking i think it can be like really really freeing and obviously can make like a lot of great minds they think in these really obscure ways but then as you're saying Lauren, there's obviously the (laughs) the other way where it's like, I don't know what is going on in there. Like, I don't know how to exactly express this. Mm -hmm. I don't know how, like, how am I, the words are coming out. I can feel them. I hear them. But whatever I'm saying, you are not feeling the same thing. Mm -hmm. You're not understanding what I'm saying. And it can be frustrating. Yeah. So he goes on to uh, explain a few other concepts of some of the problems with language. Um, to explain that language is also ambiguous, meaning that we don't always know how or what an idea means to an individual person. So language is is piled up with understanding um, that's driven by culture and family and background. So what I might say to Aiden could mean something different based on his upbringing and understanding of the world. Hmm. Uh, And then that language does not provide words for all concepts. Language is not understood uniformly. Language is poor at communicating emotions. So those are all of the, all of the pieces of some of the limitations of language. And there are some proposed solutions, but they're really way out there. Yeah, I think that that just speaks to why there is immense adoration for someone like a, a Charles Dickens or like or uh yeah, some other Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky like yeah some these household names uh, that are the as far as authors go mm-hmm. there is immense respect for them and also a lot of other other people like would would like to be uh a writer or an author or at least say they would like to be whether or not they're willing to go through the effort uh is is the barrier in a lot of ways because it is a a grind to get your ideas out there in a precise manner uh and i think that that's kind of what this conversation makes me think about as far as the limitations go is uh what how forgiving a conversation can be as opposed to written communication like written communication is like Lauren said so linear whereas a conversation I feel like is uh more branching maybe more b- mimics the the behavior of a brain and how how it 
responds uh, in, in that. And I say that when I think of like subtle cues and also the mm-hmm. ability to yeah. like nod and, and read other people's responses mm-hmm. uh, or to, to see people with their eyes glaze over and then uh, shout out to it. the YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because you're so right. Uh, In my research, I saw that 70 to 93% of language is nonverbal. Most scientists agree that it's between those ranges, but 70 to 93%, that's a huge percentage of nonverbal communication that's happening in addition to the words. So if you take away the nonverbal communication, a big part of the communication is missing, right? So if you Mm. leave just the words, written communication, lots of opportunity for misunderstanding so along yeah. along with the words you're also like when the words go in that scenario the nine the 70 to 90 percent whatever when you take away the words you're also taking away like the intonations and all that too okay i would i mean i would think I yeah because it's verbal right yeah as opposed to like just the the concrete meaning of the words yeah um okay interesting yeah, no, I mean, that's yeah, very true, for sure. I mean, I don't know if that, I don't know how, I'm obviously struggling to accept that because there's so much that's in tone that I'm like, I don't know, like, but I guess maybe tone's only like 5%, maybe, <laughs> maybe it is yeah. that, you know, I don't know, but whatever, know, okay. whatever the percentage is. Yeah, interesting. It sounds like 95% of the stats are made up on the spot, that's what this right. is like. Who's, <laughs> 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 this is my version? Who's <laughs> saying this? I, I'm, I'm mostly joking, like, I've heard these stats before, I'm only kind of yeah. contemplating out loud, like, I don't know. Maybe we'll see. We'll see. Time will tell. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think the the idea of nonverbal is probably even up for debate. Like, what what is nonverbal? What does that include? And specifically, this article that I found, right? Like, what do they define to be nonverbal? That's mm-hmm. already part of the problem with language is understanding exactly what the what the argument is. But yeah. Do you guys think that language grows or can be invented? Grows or can be invented? Uh, language in and of itself, not a language, correct? Just language. Again, this is the difficulty of language. Yeah. Is well, there it are matters. Two, this, might, this might clear yeah. up the question. There are two, like, There are two primary definitions for language. One, the principal method of human communication consisting of words used in a structured and conventional way and conveyed by speech, writing, or gesture. Two, a system of communication used by a particular country or community. I think what Dre was asking was that you're talking about Definition one or two. Yeah, definition one. Yeah, let's start with definition one. Okay. Bef- okay. I th- okay, and then you also asked two questions. You said grows or created. So I, I mean, I, I obviously think that it evolved. So therefore, it can grow. Yeah, it evolved. Like it, language evolved in us. Mm-hmm. And I'm not quite. It seems like a lot of people are considering what animals do. Language. It's just. It just isn't as advanced as ours. Like we have a very special kind of language that has predominantly a thing called displacement which means you can talk about things that aren't in your present mm-hmm. right you can talk about the past future objects that you can't see etc yeah. 
animals can't really do that for the most part, it seems. Yeah, and beyond that, too, the other distinctive uh, piece of our language that I have come across, mm-hmm. at least our spoken and written, uh, mm-hmm. like our, our verbal linguistic language, our linguistic language it sounds a little redundant, uh, but uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the, one of the distinctions is the, like we talk about, we talked a bit about the limits of language, but the limitless nature uh, in how we can combine uh, like words into a sentence and again I'm not going to do this thought justice and you might need to go and refer to some of Steven Pinker's work uh, but our ability to uh, combine words into phrases and then combine those phrases into sentences and then combine those sentences into paragraphs like yeah is is, is for all intensive purposes infinite and yeah, so yeah, for sure whereas like yeah whereas, i would say infinite and entropic though so infinitely <laughs> expanding but expanding towards disorder and in that I would say that language can be invented and it is evolving, which is what makes language so challenging. Expanding to disorder, okay. Maybe expanding to absurdity. Disorder? I'm not, maybe. But yeah, the, the, people don't, I, I do like that you brought that up. People don't talk about the infinity of like letters, right? They all talk, they talk about like the infinity of like discounting, but it's mm-hmm. like, you could make an infinite amount of you can there's impossible to make the longest sentence of all time right you can always make it longer yeah and beyond that even it's like almost it's i i I mean i don't know again i don't have a source for this but like the the repetition of a sentence is almost non-existent like if if not non-existent like any sentence that i ever come up with is almost guaranteed to be uh, different than any sentence Dre will ever come up with in his lifetime. I don't think that's true. I think that you have plenty of sentences that have never been said, be- that might not have been said before, but I've definitely said he went to the store before, and people have said he went to the store. <laughs> is that not in direct reputation to what you said? Yeah, I mean, it is. Okay. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, again, I, <laughs> I would need to do more common sides. I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. Yeah. (laughs) I disagree. (laughs) What is this inconvenient? No, I agree that, yes, you probably have said a sentence that no one may have never said before, or perhaps it's just unique to you. Mm -hmm. I agree, but this is kind of like a a rather hypothetical, yes, there are sentences that someone else has never said before. That's true. Uh, Lauren and and, Ania, I also agree that I do believe that language can be created and grow and evolve both definitions uh like what do you what's your response to that why do you ask this question uh i asked this question because i read this book in the land of invented languages by uh i i I would have to open my computer to figure out what her last her the author's name is in the land of invented languages uh by Erica Ockrent or Okrent? 
I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce her last name. Okay. Um, but she talks about how there's this consistent theme of individuals or even groups of people like coming up with their own languages uh and mm. uh one of those might be klingon like mm-hmm. the star trek mm-hmm. uh language uh and then another might be braille uh and so there's like this consistent theme of languages emerging um and people like having a desire to come up with some sort of system of describing the world that mm-hmm. might be outside of what is conventionally wise and she also goes into many many examples of these languages that just like yeah ended up in a dusty pile of papers uh in the guy's attic somewhere uh so yeah it's that's where that comes from is is like this kind of documentation that she brought up klingon is now offered on duolingo whoa in its beta version so that's cool. Just I shout that out. So if shout you want to learn Klingon, uh, to be able to speak alien with people. Shout out Duo. What possible. about Elvish? Token Elvish? Elvish, I don't think is on there yet. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. That's really cool. Um, yeah. There are... Language is is definitely really, really interesting. And you guys have both seen the movie Arrival, right? Mm-hmm. So we're talking about these all these new languages. And in the movie Arrival, spoiler alert... It's an amazing movie. If you haven't seen it, um, skip probably about two minutes of this podcast. Don't don't exit out of the podcast. Finish the podcast. <laughs> skip maybe about two minutes or so, forward, three minutes maybe, and then go watch the movie Arrival afterwards. But so in the movie, uh, there's this link. These aliens come, and they're like all weird and tentacly and all that type of stuff. You know how we always portray aliens these days. And they're trying to keep, we're trying to communicate with them. They're trying to communicate communicate with us we think so they grab this renowned linguist and these aliens communicate with these like what they're kind of like octopusy so they communicate with this type of ink looking thing and these weird symbols and we're trying to figure out what what they're saying and by the time the main character discovers or when she re- she discovers the language or uncovers like how to speak it and what it means and all that she essentially then the language it, it allows her to be what would you say beyond time outside of time right she can experience like the future before the past like she can do all these different things yeah. so essentially it's... the language was not tied to past present or future and so in that sense you could simultaneously understand the past the present and the future yes is was my understanding of the of the movie harder to explain in words my friends (laughs) than for you to go watch the movie yeah check it out when i first (laughs) when i first brought it up i thought i was going to explain that pretty well and i realized the limitations of my language (laughs) (laughs) i think the one uh main piece as far as the as far as transcending the past present and the future uh that was conveyed in arrival uh is that the language the alien language is circular um right whereas human language is linear so in human language if it's linear inherently there's going to be a beginning middle and end 
Yeah. Whereas yeah. if it, if the alien language, which is portrayed in Arrival, is circular, mm-hmm. there is no beginning nor end. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, yeah, great point. So a lot of this, so we've we're we're almost struggling, not really struggling, but we keep getting enticed back into this idea of like the same thing that we start with the Wittgenstein thing. Mm. It's like language can like complete, com- like can free you and like you know give you like the sky's the limit, but it can also really limit you in certain ways. So we're kind of going back and forth between being like, yes, as a kid, writing and language really helped me express myself and become who I am, but also it's not really good at explaining feelings. So a lot of this is related to an hypothesis called the, and I think I'm pronouncing this right, but the Sapir Wharf hypothesis. Did you guys come up upon this in your research? I did not. Please enlighten me. Okay, the Sapir Wharf hypothesis. Just a quick um, dictionary.com says a hypothesis first advanced by Edward Sapir in 1929, and subsequently developed by Benjamin Wharf. That the structure of a language determines a native speaker's perception and categorization of experience. Okay, I'm more familiar with that idea right, in the, the context of, um, of language acquisition theory, which are theories of how we may learn language. There are a couple different theories mm-hmm. out there, and that sounds quite similar to at least one of those theories yeah there's a couple other terms that are related to or become like derivatives of it or something too that i've heard as well i can't think of them off the top of my head but yeah this is a super common idea and you can tell because we keep talking about it in different ways right so this is something that humans are really really interested in and sometimes it can be like in layman's terms kind of explained as there's kind of this argument of like does your environment or like your brain etc does that determine your language or does your language just kind of determine how you experience things right mm-hmm. is your experience determining your language or is your language determining your experience and if we go back to our color episode the ancient greeks they didn't have a word for the color blue i believed so the sky was like a green and the sea or a lake was often considered a like a black right like a dark mm-hmm. And there's also certain cultures even today where they don't put as much emphasis on, they, they don't have, it doesn't, like, these distinguishments, dis, discernments between certain colors don't matter as much. So they might not have, like, a pink. It's just like, that's red. So because it's not important to them, therefore they didn't create a new word for it. Therefore they are also not distinguishing between pink and red as much as we would we see pink and we don't, we don't even really think about it which is like that's pink pink means something in our culture it means a lot right boys blue girls pink it, it means a lot we went over this in the color episode and they've also done a lot of studies where there's some evidence that fashion designers can actually see more colors than the average person because colors mean so much in the fashion industry that their brains and their language have kind of evolved to perceive these small discernments and color okay i'm gonna take this a little meta take it away and i appreciate those examples because those were all great examples of something that feels super tangible to me Hmm. what's i think a lot harder to understand and maybe if you go watch the movie that i was a little spoiled but not so much you gotta go check it out you'll understand it in that context too but here is something else i happened upon to help us imagine what a world could be like if we could unlock potentially more 
potentially more potential. Wow. (laughs) If we could unlock more potential in our language. So this is, um, this is from that same, that same source I mentioned earlier. And he mentions that a solution to some of the problems could be replacing our traditional languages with an artificial construct. Notably, he says, that statements in programming languages typically have a unique meaning and are better suited to express thoughts, alas, only in a limited area. The AI concept, semantic network, provides a good way of writing thoughts down in an at least two-dimensional manner, which allows a greater, if imperfect, focus on interconnections. And, after some minor training, it is possible to read such networks just as easily as normal text and to communicate them. So, I know that was quite meta and related to programming, so if you have some experience in programming, and Aiden, maybe you can speak to this more, uh, you might understand that concept. But, I think it was well put in, in the fact that you can potentially imagine a communication that is more two-dimensional or three-dimensional or four-dimensional. I thought that was a good way of for me to think about and imagine, okay, so we're, we have this linear one-dimensional language, but what if it could have connections uh, that were more complex? And Joe, you mentioned a trapezoid earlier, and we now talked also about like circular language in the movie too. Mm-hmm. How cool would it be if we could communicate in more than one dimension if it wasn't linear if we could make all of these connections but right now the english language certainly does not seem to do that so i don't know aiden if you want to speak some to the programming yeah that's a fascinating uh observation lauren and so for our listeners a super basic way that we can write something i mean you think about your computer screen right and it's got like the two dimensions to it or your phone screen if you only have a phone or whatever else like whatever electrical device you have with a screen that has words and images and videos in it it's only got two dimensions to it um what you can think one of the most basic uh, things you'll learn in a programming class is what's called a for loop. Uh, And so you can say for I in like one through 10, print this. And so that sounds meta to a lot of people, but you can say for like, each of these numbers, 1 through 10, so 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, print an equal sign. So you can have that in one dimension. You, you can have that for loop, say print an equal sign 10 times from left to right. So the first equal sign is the farthest one to the left. The second equal sign is the next one to the left. Third, the tenth equal sign is the farthest one to the right. What you can do is nest your for loops. So you can put one of these for loops of like the one through 10 equal sign inside of the the first one. 
So it'll say like for each of these equal signs, you're going to print it out uh, 10 times to the right and then 10 times down and then 10 times. Uh, so you'll do 10 times to the right and then you'll go down a line and then 10 times to the right and then go down a line and then 10 times mm -hmm. to the right. And that's because you just put one of these like four statements inside of the other one and created then two dimensional, a two dimensional way of conveying uh, using a one dimensional language like uh, mm -hmm. because it expanded both like left and right and up and down at mm -hmm. once in one like in one written command yep yeah okay the for loop now i can say i know some programming <laughs> yeah kind of yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah that was something else i was just thinking about in terms of my research lauren and it's uh cool you brought that up because too if you think about language and what well, we talked about some of the limits of it but also some of the limitlessness of it uh we think about our computers and how it's able they're able to re represent language images video and soon virtual reality and all these things those are fundamentally like ones and zeros that have been abstracted away layer by layer um so there's a system called ascii uh which i can't remember the what the acronym stands for exactly it's like it's probably the american standard character index of something if i had to guess um but if you think about a bit being a zero or a one so one bit of information What's the most it's a fundamental unit of information. Okay. And a fundamental unit of information is a zero or a one, a yes or a no, a true or a false. If you line eight of those up, that becomes a byte. And so by combining different sets of these zeros and ones, we can make the letter A. Like we can define a set of those zeros and ones, say it's, Zero, zero, zero is the letter A. Zero, one, zero is the letter B. One, zero, zero is the letter C. I'm just making up these sequences right now. But if we continue to abstract these layers away, uh, then we get into things like being able to convey video th through these fundamental patterns of ones and zeros. Anyways, yeah. So, <laughs> how did I do the, on my explanation? <laughs> it was amazing. It was it was meta for sure. So it was good. great. But I think just hearing you talk for our listeners, if none of that made sense, it's okay. What that should show you though is that for Aiden, based off of the Sapir Whorf hypothesis, he understands the world in ones and zeros more than i mean i don't know if you just totally think in ones and zeros that'd be cool <laughs> but like certainly more than me and probably more than many of our listeners and so aiden's reality right i think that's kind of what the hypothesis was speaking to and jay you can speak to this more too aiden's reality maybe is enhanced maybe it's just different but it's certainly well 
odd, I think. But <laughs> it's certainly, it's certainly different, right? Yeah. And I would say has added to the way that you view the world. And as Dre had mentioned, taking it back to the ancient, I think, Greeks who didn't have a word for blue, maybe didn't take away from their world, but also absolutely different. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think uh, to to bring that kind of full circle, the power of language and how it allows us to understand our world or not seems yeah. to be a theme that really runs runs deep. Yeah, I think there are a lot of language styles or um, perhaps I don't know if I call it deficiency, but I, maybe like a language style that do actually that do add some a lot to that culture but also really 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 take away and kind of cap them off shout to Wittgenstein but because there there are these aboriginal groups who because of the necessity of their environments and of their demands they speak in a very directional way, right? You guys have heard of these people or no? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, there's multiple groups of people like this, usually like, you know, kind of older type of Aboriginal type of people where instead of thinking in left and right, forward, back, they think in North, East, West, South. They think directionally, right? Cause that's obviously really important in the ancient world specifically. So even if they were gonna talk about Aiden's left pant leg, they would say like Southwest, leg yeah if they were going to say i'm gonna go whatever you know whatever straight they would just say say, i'm going to go whatever direction they're going east west and whatever direction they're facing Mm -hmm. right for us our directions are very subjective and dependent on us our straight is always our straight theirs is not that way it's whatever direction they're facing cardinally so and even too so how important direction is to them Mm -hmm. This part was really fascinating to me is they don't speak or sorry, they don't say, hey, how are you? They say, hey, where are you going? And then you respond, I'm going north, north or I'm going north east. (laughs) That's what you say. That's how important direction is to them. That's how much it has shaped their world. And there's a number of these Aboriginal groups. This is, so that's kind of really cool, right? So they obviously like for me, I I have no idea. I'll look right at the sun. I have no idea where north is. Yeah, that's how that's that, that is how yeah. inept I am with direction, which is fine. I got you know GPS, but that's how it is kind of shaped their world, which is cool. But a lot of these groups that have these, or I don't know if there's just a ton, but I know there's um at least one in uh, Australia. They also, I believe it's the same group, also don't really have a number system, like they don't have the word eight or five or six. Hmm. So they don't just count off one, two, three, four, five pencils, right? They don't, that that concept doesn't really apply to them. So where I'm saying there's a huge cap on them, a really unfortunate one is in mathematics, right? If you don't have the number four, how far can your society go? How good can your architecture be? How much can you fathom astrophysics or But do they need to? (laughs) 
It depends. See, well, now we're going to get all, like, <laughs> philosophical. It, it depends on what their goals are, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe they're perfectly happy. I don't know that much about the people. But, yeah, it's a fair observation that, like, if you don't have, if if there is no concept for mm-hmm. the number four, it's right. really hard to do addition. Right. So I pu- I, 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 pu- I suppose the uh the value judgment of me saying it's unfortunate, I see it as unfortunate as a member of this culture mm-hmm. and this language. Perhaps it doesn't decrease their happiness at all or likelihood to mm-hmm. reproduce and, you know, pass on their genetics. So maybe it doesn't matter as much to them. Yeah. But fascinating. But it, but is, it is still inhibiting. It is fascinating that uh, a common theme that I think has been brought up between the left brain comment about that being more linguistically as well as mathematically oriented as well as uh just you bringing up the concept of the number four and uh it is fascinating that a lot of these language theorists also tend to be mathematicians or or i've the ludwig Wittgenstein, I think he was mm-hmm. a mathematician as well as a language uh, theorist. Uh, I do think that there are immense overlaps in terms of having something that represents a con a concept, a variable in mathematics, mm-hmm. or a word in language, and then having a set of rules that connect these variables in mathematics or words in uh, language. Like in mathematics, you obviously have like operators or functions like addition, subtraction, multiplication. But in sentences, we have different syntactical rules, like how you can create a complete sentence where you have a a noun, a verb, and then a subject. Uh, But there are immense parallels there uh yeah that i just find yeah yeah i agree beautiful yeah i agree (laughs) it is mathematics or can mathematics be seen as a language there into like another world or another dimension similar to like the arrival aliens i would i would i'm a little biased but yeah, I would say so. Uh, I would say that I think, so I subscribe to the mathematical universe hypothesis, um, which I suppose is a little less uh, like alternate universe, like a describer of an alternate or like a a language into an alternate universe uh, and more of a language that like is the foundation of our universe yeah uh and i think that that's where we see a lot of these or why we see a lot of these parallels between math and language and math and other uh like yeah. subject areas yeah because they're both just symbols right they're both just representations of some kind of truth or and thing in the world and i think but i don't know I, I guess i'm i'm with you there and i know we kind of have this conversation in a different podcast but now i'm reaffirming i think i'm yeah. with you there because like we're saying with the limitations of language math clears a lot of that up right we can't really Mm -hmm. speak about like a lot of these ideas these concepts about like speed of light and this and that and um the math because we we have words like wormhole and 
black and all this but when when it really when you really break things down to especially like quantum levels and stuff like that when when i'm listening to people like um kaku and those guys or kiku machio um, when i'm listening to them they they're saying like yeah some of these some of these concepts can really only be understood with math mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you can't really put it into words if we if all we have was words we would never understand the universe right right it's this mathematical language which yeah. really unlocks the secrets and another just so, some further evidence i would say is like what's so freaking cool in my eyes about math is like if i write math here some guy in russia who doesn't speak a word of english can understand it mm-hmm. the universal language uh yeah not i mean not <laughs> maybe he smiles <laughs> yeah i smile um it, <laughs> at least amongst humans who have a concept for the number four <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, any other concepts or ideas or quotes or anything that you guys thought was really interesting? I was curious if you guys thought that our society overemphasized or underemphasized syntax versus semantics or semantics versus syntax. So I'll clarify syntax is the grammatical structure of text. Whereas semantics is the meaning being conveyed behind the text. And I am just curious if you guys think one or the other is overemphasized or, or underemphasized. And maybe in that question, we add, we can add math if, if that's a part of what you believe is over or underemphasized in American society. Mm, and overemphasized are underemphasized in American society. Uh, syntax or semantics. I think, I mean, I think they're so intertwined, like the structure of a sentence and the meaning of the words in that sentence, because the meaning of the words in that sentence are so contextual or related to context like I think they're so incredibly intertwined my thought would be just that we don't emphasize language enough and and the importance of it and the importance of being precise in in language and yeah so I guess (laughs) yeah that's where I would I would land on that when it comes to semantics I might have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about However, when you're talking about, so when I think of that question with semantics and this, what I'm saying, this might not make sense. I might not be understanding what semantics really are, but one thing is when you start studying other languages and you become, you just like, you at least understand some words, some sounds in those languages. Once you start hearing those same sounds in your own language, you start to make those connections, right? Not only do you have to filter through that sound in your first language, but now you have to filter through that sound, second, third, fourth language. And usually if you're fluent, you're not thinking about it, right? It's just like, it's happening, right? You're not conscious mm-hmm. about it. So when I'm, when I'm getting that, and when I'm thinking about like putting too much emphasis on a semantic, I think that a lot can be, many doors can be opened by knowing multiple different languages. And even mm-hmm. though like that, word and that sound is very arbitrary and contrived 
you can find certain connections through sounds through different languages and not just like when they're all when they have like the same latin root but studying ja- i can't i really wish i could give an example right now but when i've studied some japanese i've seen some words that i'm like that sounds really spanish like that word sounds just like a spanish word and they have really similar meanings right there's things like that that are really interesting to me and when it when, when it comes to the syntactical part i think probably yes there's too much emphasis on it the western world so beginning with um i don't know if greek the greek language is like right to left but i'm guessing it would be judaism i believe is right to left obviously where left to right a lot of western languages are Actually, i don't know if that's true but english is at least uh so i think that is an issue because whether it's because we think linearly or whether our language is linear chicken and the egg those things are kind of trapping us in this time versus like the japanese right up to down or whatever in there's different ways and they have these symbols and whatever eastern cultures but they also have a lot of eastern cultures also have a more circular way of thinking about life and time so i think yes in a way we do put too much emphasis on it and it is kind of going back to kind of the superior warp it's like our language is kind of warping the way we experience the universe and the way we think about it so we should start writing English in in circles now. Yeah, tetrahedrons, all it like just yeah. you know. <laughs> um, who knows what could happen? No. I, I <laughs> Shout out to a I future blog know. post that I maybe you, know. you could write because <laughs> yeah. that sounds hard. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I hear you though. Uh, I think there is one speaking to the commonalities of sounds in language. Uh, there is this uh this ethio jazz musician uh named mcleet adero i believe and we can link her uh ted talk in the in the show notes but she uh brings up how much her natural environment influences her music whether it be from bird song to the sound of dropping a pan on on in her kitchen and i have i have to think that environment has played a huge role in the development of specific of specific words Uh, i think of and like the the meaning that is then subsequently conveyed I think about the word I'm thinking back to our profanity episode Mm -hmm. and the word fuck and how like sharp that word is and how much then emotion comes out when it's used. I'm also thinking about words like the word bang and that's used to describe a loud noise in the U S and like how much that um, I can't quite put my, put a, put words to what I feel when I, when I hear that word, but I, I, there's something between the, the, this short and succinctness of it and the parallel between that and like a loud bang of a, a car behind you that might yeah. scare you. Like there, there are seems to me some sorts of parallels between the 
vocalizations that we make in in our natural environment around us but yeah no question i think that's very true with onomatopoeia and like even like the word hiss and all that like you kind of Mm -hmm. extend it a little bit i sound like a hiss like kind of like you would imagine a snake would and Mm -hmm. even too there's there's some words that i hear that aren't necessarily onomatopoeia aren't i don't think they're considered but they sound like it to me like for example actually i'm gonna do an experiment what do you, what do you guys think the word mellifluous means? Mellifluous. Or mellifluent. What do you guys think that word means? Like if I said that word is mellifluent. Hmm. I'm going to say bad sounding. Okay. I'm going to say negatively connotating. Okay, I think so. I, I think I missed it. I think the word is mellifluous, and but I I, I kind of um, mixed it up. I, I kind of made you guys think of malevolent. That's what I'm guessing. So I'm an idiot. But <laughs> what I was trying to so the word mellifluous, mellifluous. I think it how is, do you spell it? Do you have any idea? I know how to. I it, I think it's mellifluous. I know how to spell, <laughs> it, but the reason why I'm messing up is because I keep thinking it's vent, but I'm pretty sure it's fluous. But um, whatever. Mm-hmm. My point is that word to me sounds like its definition. What it, what is its definition? Have a rich, smooth flow. Yes, like it, that mm, word flows. And sometimes they like they'll say like it, it, that that word means like a word is like honey, right? It's like a flowing, whatever, like a like like that. And like that word, like to me, sounds like what it means. It sounds like onomatopoeia when I hear it. Obviously, yeah, my, my tongue is kind of messing me up there. But but I, if I said mellifluous, see so yeah. That right, like flowing. Like, and it's yeah. like sweet, musical, pleasant to hear. Yeah, yeah. For our listeners, spelled M E L L I F L U O U S. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that word, even a far more complex word than bang, but it that kind of sounds to me like when I first heard that, I was like, huh. And I saw the definition. I was like, that seems. That's what I would guess that yeah. word means. Right. Yeah. My bad for messing you guys up in that little experiment. Nah, no worries. Yeah, so that that is a really interesting concept. I do really like that. I haven't I put some thought into that stuff, but that was kind of cool that you, the way that you kind of spun that into it. Mm-hmm. Um, one other thing that really interests me in my research, my bad, got away from the mic there, is so Lara Boroditsky did a TED talk, and she talked about a lot of cool things that were in, in regards to language. But one of the things she talked about, I don't know if it was just a syntactical thing or just in general how we describe events but she said that in english we really like to attribute responsibility to things Mm. versus in a language and a culture like spanish they don't as much so for example if i stood up and i accidentally knocked over aiden's mug and it broke you guys would be like oh yeah like dre broke my mug but in a culture like Spanish, in their language, it wouldn't make as much sense mm-hmm. for them. They would say, no, the, he stood up and the mug broke. So there's way less blame put huh. on things like that, specifically mm-hmm. with, like, they consider intent mm-hmm. when it comes to blame. And that's really interesting to me because as soon as I heard that concept, I was like, that's fascinating because that has a lot of criminal um, implications. Oh, how yeah. we think about accidents, how we think about responsibility, how we think about agency and one of the things is i'm becoming more and more of a skeptic of free will and i'm becoming more and more sensitive to the prison system and the plight mm-hmm. of 
prisons and the state of that, specifically in America. And I think it seems very, very correlated. Our, our desire to blame people and give people agency in their mistakes or in their decisions, which are really, really influenced by so many chemicals and environmental factors. But since we want to simplify it down to like this person did this and is in full control, we can send people to death and we can send people to eight years of prison life, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm trying to imagine and help create and shift that Overton window into a society where it is not okay to lock people in cages for the rest of their life, except in some rare situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, that's a... So having grown up learning Spanish in, in school, uh, that's, yeah, an apt ob- observation that I had never considered before. Uh, but I do think that there's a lot of truth in it. And I think, uh, it reminds me to, uh, so Dre and I went out for Chipotle earlier today and, and we were talking about common science and the ability for, uh, the ability of science or the the uh, usefulness of science in finding common ground with others. And one aspect of science that I've griped about at times, but I'm also possibly seeing the benefit of it now, (laughs) is uh, a lot of how we write, uh, like a lot of how journal, journal articles are written is very much with the individual removed from the writing so it's like the experiment what was performed uh on this many whatever or whatever it is like it's there's it's starting to move more towards uh more back towards using some of the like uh first person person, like the i and the the we uh but for the longest time it was uh it was very much hammered into scientists to avoid using I and we and to try to remain objective, they would mm-hmm. say, uh, and to uh, focus or to just subtract that out and say, like, the, there was this experiment or whatever else. And one thing about science that was inspiring in, like, the COVID pandemic in particular is that there was a lot of Co-op, like there was a lot, a lot of cooperation among scientists and sharing of, of data before even like a lot of governments and other institutions got on board with, with the sharing. And I'm not sure if there is any uh, corollary there between the, the language, the emphasis of the language being more on the thing than like a person causing something. Anyways, yeah, I just thought that that was a a an illuminating observation dre and i appreciate you for bringing it up <laughs> no, no. In, a, in, a, in, a, in a remarkably long-winded absolutely uh, fascinating to think of i think you might be on to something i don't think that it's true in the context of science personally because i think scientists 
are trained from day one to be competitors and to not work together. I think the COVID example was something entirely different, but yeah, I also appreciate the example. I think we would be remiss as common scientists if we didn't at least mention uh, the two areas of your brain that are most responsible <laughs> for a language uh, as we're coming to oh, yeah. a bit of a close. Um, and there are, yeah, two areas that are primarily responsible that I'm going to mention there uh, is Broca's area and Wernicke's area. They are two chunks of your brain, like kind of around your temple area on the left side of your head. And Broca's area, I always think Broca, Boca. So that is where uh, speech... What does Boca mean? Boca is Spanish for mouth. And bro- broca, Boca. <laughs> See, that's some contextual stuff. I know. Yeah. Thank you <laughs> for calling like... me out. Thank you for calling me out. Uh, so that's where motor ability for speech production happens. So Broca, Boca. Boca means mouth. Now you're learning language and science and Spanish, all sorts of language happening. Broca, Boca, talking. And then Wernicke's area, and I always think of Wernicke, what are you saying? So Wernicke's area is responsible for understanding context and meaning. So these two areas, Broca, Boca, speech production, and then Wernicke's area, what are you saying to comprehend and explain speech? So there are also some other pathways in your brain that are involved when you're speaking and when you are comprehending, but just two two small pieces physiologically that can maybe help give you a little bit of a picture too, in addition to all this philosophy, how our bodies are also working to understand the craziness that is language. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, when it comes to brokers and Bernicke's too, an interesting thing, one of the kind of how we discovered exactly what they do was through damage to them. Mm-hmm. So when the when the Broca's area was damaged, we realized that people were they could understand speech, but they couldn't speak, and I think maybe couldn't write as well. And then when it came to Wernicke's, that when that was damaged, we noticed that they could no longer comprehend, but they what people were saying, but they could like write and speak, um, in a kind of I don't know, like they could physically speak, but uh. And I, th- what else what was I going to say with that? You look like you're going to say something, Aiden. Take it away. <laughs> um, I, I just like to say, yeah, Dre, uh, that's, it's wild how, how little we do know about the brain and mm-hmm. how often <laughs> when we find things out about the brain, it happens to be because of some accident or disease or some abnormal yeah uh, situation that can then hint at what the what the region is used for uh the other thing that i was thinking about to connect it back to the one ones and zeros being a fundamental bit of information a neuron fires or it doesn't so a neuron can be i love me a some one action potentials or a zero and yeah what do you call a failed a failed initiation potential then? A point five? Or you just it doesn't mm, matter. If, if it's failed, then it didn't happen, so it's a zero. Didn't happen. Doesn't exist. <laughs> change the influx and enough failed initiations together create an initiation. You just don't care about the sub relationship. 
Is that what? true? On, on a failed initiation of the book, right? Well, so like if it you're coming a, off Wouldn't of it be a few... partial in initiation? No, because it's all or nothing response in the nervous system. You mm -hmm. either have depolarization or you don't. Yeah. And if enough of these failed ones happen... Like, so if you were coming off of a failed... A failed... Um, initiation, you would already have a slightly more positive threshold. So you could have several stimuli that might add into depolarization of the cell but it that's a specific oh, so, yeah okay it's called summation it's, it's, it's still the, sorry summation. i got excited the neurons still either fire, fired or it didn't yeah, yeah. A one or a zero things either happen or they don't <laughs> <laughs> semantics okay any last comments questions or concerns first of all what is that Things, what, what, Heidegger's cat? No, that's not Heidegger's cat. What's Schrodinger's that? cat. Schrodinger's cat, yeah. Um, final thoughts you said? Yeah, let's hear all about Schrodinger's cat. No, no, no. no. <laughs> Schrodinger's cat is not. You're just going to shout it out without saying anything about it? No, no, no. no. All right. Do, do your Googling and, and common scientists, and you can uh, look up Schrodinger's cat and learn more. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So, my final thought is. If you have never heard, you guys, obviously, in our audience, of the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, it is some amazing art. There's a YouTube, it's a YouTube channel and a website, but go to the YouTube channel so you can actually see the images and hear um, the creator say, explain these words. So essentially, he, I don't think he created all the words, but I think he created some of them, but there are these kind of obscure words to describe feelings that we don't always have words for so that is going back to i mean kind of this whole podcast but going back to the beginning figuring out like am i angry am i sad no i'm not sad i'm not angry what am i but if it's kind of a failure it isn't a fail failure of feeling it's a failure of language that we don't have a word for this feeling so one example is a word called onism which is defined as the frustration of being stuck in just one body that inhabits only one place at a time, which is like standing in front of the departure screen at an airport, flickering over with strange place names like other people's passwords, each representing one more thing you'll never get to see before you die. And all because, as the arrow on the map helpfully points out, you are here. Yeah, that's an obscure sorrow. <laughs> But but it's a feeling. But it's a, it's you, a feeling. Yeah, if you walk, yeah. go to his YouTube channel, and that was more of a description. Like that was kind of laying out more of how he would have broken it down and giving you more detail in his YouTube video. Yeah. Usually the definitions are a little bit more succinct, but he goes through all these feelings that we do definitely have, or at least I've had so many of them, but I've never really been able to express them because I don't know the words. Kind of like you're kind of like oh, like you know when you kind of and you explain yeah. in these long ways, but you don't have that it's one on the word. Tip of my tongue. Right. Yeah, but I don't have. Yeah. So, Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, I think, for word lovers, language lovers, feelers, human beings. Check it out. Absolutely. Well, common scientists, we've been all over the place with the theories and triumphs and struggles of language. And I hope that this week gave us a little bit of a more clear, maybe more obscure picture of what 
language looks like in our day-to-day -day lives and how we as common scientists can explore meaning in our lives with our language. Hey common scientists, hope you enjoyed the cast. Thanks for investing in common science. We hope it brought as much value to you as it did to us. To learn more, smash the subscribe button and visit our website, commonscientists.com, where you can read our blog, join our email newsletter, and follow us on social media. Finally, if you like what we have to say, you can absolutely support us on Patreon. We can always use more support. You can navigate there also from our website, commonscientists.com, common scientists with an S, so that we can continue cultivating a community of common scientists.